My luck. The pandemic lifts enough for us to finally get the green light to launch a show we first began recording during the shutdowns. Isn't that a good thing? Some of the stuff I unload about in session might sound dated. The audience will think I never go out, that I don't know the world has moved on. Andy, you still never go out. At least I avoid birds crabbing on me. Keep hoping for the ride to turn my tide. Keep lurching on the sidelines, searching for the guidelines. Twitching on the byways, hitching on the highways of life. Welcome to the neurotic vaccine. As the entire world races to distribute the effective vaccines that'll one day make us immune to COVID-19, what about immunity to another condition that affects even more of us? I'm clinical and forensic psychologist, Dr. Scott Kapoyan. In a time when we could all use a little emotional healing, this new podcast will treat my patient, former Seinfeld writer and author Andy Cowan, and you, our coveted listeners, in a series of virtual therapy sessions that aims to help Andy become immune to, in the broadest sense of the word, that is not affected or shaped by neurosis. I've been shaped by neurosis my whole life. Sounds like you're trying to erase who I am. Give me a virtual lobotomy. Yes, I'm trying to understand your neurosis, and I want to hear more about it. I'm here today because I'm neurotic. Neurotics are survivors. My ancestors who weren't neurotic enough to worry about everything probably got eaten by everything. It's exciting to hear that you've survived up to this point and that you've presented yourself in virtual therapy. I'm very excited that you're trying to move forward. All those hundreds and hundreds of years of my ancestors, war, famine, leading to me. I wonder if they'd think it was worth it. And it's leading to us. We're working together collaboratively to cure you. What am I, ham? <laughs> Guess I am a ham for doing this. I don't know. Who am I to complain about the last two years? I'm alive. I have no right to complain. But I'm so used to being annoyed this decade. It's already my old normal. I can't imagine the return to the new old normal won't still be annoying. Well, let's get specific. What are the top three things that are annoying you? Uh, people who rely on meaningless lists. <laughs> well, I mean, everything seems even harder now. I mean, life was never not hard. I don't care who you are. That was pretty non-neurotic of me to say, right, Dr. K? Keep going. But, you know, life suddenly got harder. Like when school suddenly got harder. I was a whiz at third grade multiplication. Life was a breeze. Then wham, fourth grade and fractions. Ah, life was never a breeze. More like gale force winds. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so was one of your first challenges handling fractions? Well, many years later, when I made my age a fraction of what it is on dating sites. But, oh, get this, Dr. K. I emailed a business contact the other day, just a note, asking how she was, you know, reminding her I'm still alive. I was looking forward to regrouping down the line. I sign off with stay safe. She writes back, great. No, stay safe. I'm in a vulnerable age group. I deserve one more than she did. Well, perhaps she thought you were healthier and didn't need that. Stay safe. So I'm so healthy, I can just go out and lick doorknobs as far as she's concerned? 
Well, I mean, Andy, really, how, how well do you know her? We don't know what was going on in her head at that time. I remember early last year, I emailed the apartment manager to postpone a maintenance request. Told her I was really sick. I think I had all the symptoms Tom Hanks described after he got the virus, except for the filthy, rich, universally adored symptoms. I didn't have those. So the, <laughs> so the manager emails back, no problem. No feel better? I would have felt better if she'd said feel better. <laughs> uh, you were looking for a certain type of response and you didn't get it. Uh, yeah, like the one I just got from you. <laughs> Actually, I can't wait till people stop with a stay safe. That's when you know the pandemic's over, when we can stop worrying about death and get back to worrying about everything leading up to it. Reminds me of what uh, Woody Allen, did you ever hear him say this at the AFI salute to Diane Keaton a few years back? Feel guilty even uttering his name after that HBO tar and feathering he got. But his book made you think, Mamma Mia. <laughs> this is what he said. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Death, you know, is like a colonoscopy, you know, peaceful, you're out of it, uh, unaware of anything. And life is like prep day. Well, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, that sounds like something Woody Allen would come up with. Dr. K, I need work again so I can look forward to the weekend. Because when your weekend is seven days long, you don't look forward to another seven-day weekend. I've always wanted whatever I don't have. Till I have it, then I want what I used to have. I want work so I can want not working again. Well, this leads us to the part of the therapy where we're talking about acceptance, Andy. Accepting what is, not trying to force the universe into something that it's not, what do you think of that, Andy? Well, if I can't bend about it in therapy, where can I bend about it? Do you think, is the venting helpful? The venting about venting, not so much. <laughs> you know, all this social distancing, like people in LA didn't keep socially distant enough before, stare at their phone for another endorphin hit while ignoring people. The whole planet became a game of twister. You know, put your feet here, but not there. It's a game of life, Andy. The object is to value it, protect it, and enjoy it under the circumstances. I got to admit, I have liked feeling less guilty being my usual shut-in self. You know, I used to feel guilty being a recluse and not going out. Now, at least I'm providing a service. I'm saving lives. And remember, a big part of your therapy was getting out and connecting with people. So we're going to have to rework that a little bit, aren't we? Yeah, connecting with uh, potential droplets. Here's a sign I'm isolated. I get scared when the phone rings. You know, who died? Or what bogus threat from a robotic scammer is it going to be this time? And I haven't gotten rid of my landline, by the way. You know, I feel like some kind of freak. You're not on your smartphone? People care more about the intelligence of my phone than the intelligence of me. I mean, I, I don't ask cute women with idiot boyfriends, why don't you have a smart boyfriend? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm the only one with a phone that doesn't drop out and remembers its original function, to be heard. And 90% of the callers, this is one of the negatives of having a landline, are those damn robots. If I want to wait on hold 20 minutes for a live human, the robot wonders if I'd be interested in taking a survey after I'm done. Some people are interested in art, philosophy. I'm interested in killing more of my day taking a survey. About what? How much I like? Clinical depression from on-hold music burrowing an earworm into my skull. 
I'm not sure how really depressed you are or if you're just upset and angry about things you can't control. Okay, good. Well, I'm making you depressed now. Uh, no, I feel fine. I'm, I'm, I, would say, I would say I'm curious. Curious enough to take a survey? <laughs> you know, these robots or even human people, the phone reps, never get the thanks very much hint that you're done talking and just want to get the hell off the phone. Is there anything else I can help you with? There is something else you can help me with. Help me understand why you always ask, is there anything else I can help you with? <laughs> if there was something else you could help me with, wouldn't I be bringing that to your attention on my own? I guess you're frustrated by uh, AI algorithms and cliche-ridden exactly. responses. Yeah, yeah, the Stepford wife universe out there. Remember the movie Airplane, when annoying people kept interrupting Robert Stack at the airport, and his only recourse was punching out Harry Krishnas and all the other hawkers of pamphlets that disrupted his day? That's how I feel every day. Take this survey. Bam. Please rate us. Pow. How'd you like your underwear order? Whack. Maybe your focus on being bothered by these everyday assaults on your inner world wouldn't be as intense if a normal outside world of diversions didn't still have restrictions. Meanwhile, when you're home all the time and don't have to be anywhere, ordering food delivery is a major accomplishment. It's funny. I used to drive around stressed out hitting five, six stores weekly to do my marketing. Now, ordering from Instacart is even more stressful. Relinquishing control to somebody else, Dr. K. Not that I don't appreciate these frontline workers too, you know, who brave the stores for you, but you monitor the online shoppers as they're doing your shopping. God forbid I forget to click no substitutes for the liquid egg whites in case they're out. They could switch them with egg noodles like they care if you eat pasta for breakfast. Isn't that an advantage having that? Isn't that a good thing? Well, yeah. I mean, you can text them on the desktop app as they're shopping. And uh, when they respond, their little JPEGs pop up. And if they're smiling, I'm thinking, oh, good. They look nice. You know, they, uh. won't, they won't mind if I ask them to pick up something else I forgot. You invest in that one tiny picture of them till they show up with your stuff and they're not smiling at all. Even with their mask on, I can tell. That one snapshot in time had me convinced I really knew them. It's like a dating site. They could have been high on edibles when they took the picture. Who knows? <laughs> what is that like? Well, I mean, if your order's really screwed up and you click the report a problem, the online chat robots, again, are like the robots, this combo of super friendly and super useless. It's very passive aggressive. And, and the last food delivery guy... Get this, substituted five orders of frozen vegetables with 18 frozen fruit pops. Mm. I mean, how do you mix up those food groups? Yeah, you know, still had to punch in a big tip or, or next time, who knows, they could lick the broccoli in retaliation. Losing control of your vegetables? Again, Dr. K, I'm all about order. You know, I'm no good with monkey wrenches thrown at me or disorder. That's what my bad dreams are always about. Something amiss. These don't look like my normal glasses. If only I could find my normal glasses. It casts this pall over my entire dream. Then I wake up, realize I have my glasses, and my first reaction, eh, who gives a shit? <laughs> Even though my bad dream became a good dream come true. I wonder what that bad dream was. I'll tell you what was becoming a bad dream. You know, hiding out in my apartment may be normal for me, but not with Stephen Colbert and 
all these other talk show hosts, my other virtual roomies hiding out in their homes in the beginning. It's like they were living with me, getting on my nerves, you know, without the special lighting and fancy sets on Zoom, they seem more like us. If they're like me, no wonder I have less respect for them now. You sound like you wound up having more company than you had before the pandemic. That's right. Actually, they aren't like me because they're working and rich as hell. How come I'm not working and rich as hell? I was watching people invite me into their homes who in real life would never invite me into their homes. Well, in real life, Andy, you might never even want to be in their homes. You just, you just said you're getting a, a little tired of them. You know what I was getting tired of? The bookshelf. I have to get that bookshelf in the shot. You notice that? You're all so well-read. I used to take out books from the library, but now, how are they going to monitor the anti-vaxxers who lick their fingers before turning a page? I think that's going to be a relic from the past. Take your temperature if it's normal, read a page, lick, turn the page, wipe the page you licked in case you picked up the virus since you took your temp a second ago. You've been faced with frustrations. We've all been faced with frustrations that are more enduring, that are more unique, that haven't happened in 100 years. Uh, you know, Trump thinks it's once every 103 years. He kept saying the pandemic last time was 1917. When's he going to get that year right? <laughs> There isn't one person on his staff who isn't afraid of being canned if he mentioned it's 1918, not 1917. You, you were so close. Good for you. Well, it has caused anxiety and duress. But remember, Andy, these are all opportunities, not problems. So if we reframe it as something that can work out well, as something that can propel us to move forward, you're going to move toward a greater life. What do you think of that? If those sub-variants don't stop mutating... I'll be moving forward into a fetal position. I actually had a fruitful session with my other therapist today. <laughs> it would be nice if you had a fruitful session with this therapist. He said I'd be a lot happier if I bought some corned beef and a half a pound of ground round. Actually, he's not really my therapist. He's my butcher. But he really knows how to listen. <laughs> Well, you know, we're both very excited about this, our premiere podcast on the Benstown McVeigh Media Podcast Network. Yes. We first did 50 hours of an earlier incarnation, Up and Down Guys, way back in 2000, as an audio and live video show on the World Wild Web, and that kind of thing was pretty rare. Remember that, Dr. K? Oh, that was the real cowboy era, wasn't it? And uh, there are two chapters about it in my big book, acquired in 2019 by the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York, which includes tons of stuff on Seinfeld, all kinds of comedy and big stars. Get ready for product placement. Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars, with a foreword by Jay Leno. Speaking of which, who better to have on our premiere show than the comedian's comedian? You never hear that in other industries. The proctologist's proctologist. <laughs> if other proctologists are bending over for the guy, it's good enough for me. You've gone from comedy to proctology. Congratulations. And in both, you'll find a lot of a-holes. <laughs> but not this guy. Jay Leno will be joining us. Very exciting. He must have gotten the neurotic vaccine as a kid, because unlike most comedians, he seems immune to neurosis. Well, we're going to find out if that's true when we interview him. How can these times not make you neurotic. Right, Dr. K? Uh, no, not necessarily, Andy. 
Well, you know how certain car model years, speaking of Leno and cars, were lemons? I know this much. 2020, and in a lot of ways 2021, were life lemons. Okay. On YouTube, I saw this compilation of New Year's Eve celebrations. All these people with bad hair jumping up and down. 10, 9, 8, 7, happy 1979. And I'm thinking, that year's going to be a lemon. Gas <laughs> shortage, hostage crisis. Why are you people celebrating? Happy 2001. Are you crazy? Get under a blanket and hide. That year's really going to suck. Hey, the human genome sequence was revealed. Uh, well, they're still looking for that neurotic gene. <laughs> Happy 2020. A million human sardines in Times Square. Some faraway bat was going, mmm, that looks good. 2020 was the year we first developed the neurotic vaccine. My luck, they'll develop an actual neurotic vaccine. I'll take it, and I'll be too well adjusted to do the show. Well, if it's 80% effective, you'll still be neurotic enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, things may still not be great, Dr. K, but every once in a while, this show provides a public service. It's time for things whereby an already annoying phenomenon is temporarily made even more annoying, giving us a newfound appreciation for how well off we were to begin with. We're all so sick of washing our hands. Not that I'm saying it's not important, but ah, I mean, the annoyance of that, come on, Scott. Yeah, it, it is annoying, but there's a benefit to it also. Did I wash it enough? Am I washing it enough? Should I wash it again? But long enough to sing happy birthday every time. That's what the CDC originally mentioned. Don't blow out the candles unless you want droplets in your cake, by the way. Mmm, so moist. <laughs> but too bad for the songwriter, COVID didn't hit before happy birthday became public domain in 2016. But what if it still wasn't public domain? Wash your hands. Sing happy birthday. Send a check to the writer of happy birthday. Things could be worse. Nothing could be worse than that cha-ching effect. If we had more cha-ching, we could have afforded a better cha-ching. What about this one? Nah, that even costs less cha-ching. Okay, imagine if you were Edward Scissorhands. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Things could be worse. Scissors don't have nerve endings. That made no sense either. Forget happy birthday. What if the CDC made us sing Murder Most Foul? That Dylan tune about the JFK assassination every time we washed our hands? After 17 minutes, your hands would be knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Okay, before we welcome Jay Leno, you know, one of the most enjoyable writing gigs I've had over the years was collaborating with great syndicated comic artists like Harry Bliss, Hillary Price, and Dan Perraro on some 300 Bizarros, his award-winning King Features strip. And another shout-out to a fellow collaborator, artist Dan McConnell. Right now, I'd like to exercise that cartoon writing muscle for a segment on our podcast, Dr. K. Listeners, it's time for today's... 
cartoon by you. I've written it. I'd like to hear that. And you listeners, virtual artists, will now proceed to draw it in your heads. Then, Dr. K, I'd like your psychological assessment of the cartoon. Okay. Caption, side view mirror therapy. Patient in Shrink's office is looking at a wall-mounted side view mirror image of his annoyed wife posing in front of the mirror. Shrink tells patient, your wife is closer to you than she appears. Uh, I wonder what she's annoyed about. It's a cartoon, not a movie trailer. <laughs> well, I'm curious, Andy, why you came up with this particular scenario, the side view and the mirror and annoyance. To what extent does this mirror your own life? Ah, good pun there, Dr. K. I mean, it's healthy that they're trying to strengthen their relationship, right? Boy, that sounds like something that you learned from me in past therapy sessions. Don't take credit where credit isn't deserved. <laughs> Really? I'm, I'm just uh, explaining what's there, my friend. Sometimes couples get into the habit of misidentifying cues from another partner that could be perfectly benign. In our business, Andy, we call this the misattribution error, and they could attribute negativity where it doesn't necessarily exist. So it might not be such a bad lesson to learn that people in your life may be closer than they appear. Would they have to put side view mirrors on their bedroom ceiling to simulate closeness there? <laughs> I think that kind of thinking is better left in the rear view mirror, Andy. Ah, more clever wordplay. Well, thanks for your analysis, Dr. K. And thank you, listeners, for the artwork in your heads. If you imagined your signatures before mine, you might want to reimagine that. We are honored to welcome the longest distance runner of comedians, a man as immune to neurosis as he is to a green vegetable, Mr. Jay Leno. Thank you for being our very first guest on our very first neurotic vaccine podcast. Catchy title. Yeah, I think people will flock to that name. <laughs> You're making me more neurotic now just worrying yeah, about yeah. the title now. I guess anal cancer was taken, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be the spinoff. <laughs> Jay, I need your neurotic antibodies because you always seem so centered, one of the least neurotic comedians out there. Do you have any tips for me? You know, I kind of take it one day at a time. I'm not someone who gets deliriously happy, nor do I become depressed. I always shoot for contented. If you shoot for contented, you'll be fine. If you shoot for happiness, you're always going to be disappointed. But happiness is a privilege. It's not a right. And it's like champagne. If you drink it every day, you just become an alcoholic with no appreciation of the champagne. If you have it once a month, whatever, you know, I'm that way about happiness. I'm contented. I enjoy my life immensely. And when nice things happen, it's good. Did that include the big birthday you had at the beginning of all this? Yeah. Did you celebrate? Or are birthdays a big deal for you? Big milestones no. like that? No, no. Again, I don't get deliriously happy, nor do I get horribly depressed. I, I like being this age because I am better against other 70-year-olds than I ever was against other 20-year-olds. I can go back now and beat the crap out of the quarterback. He's in a wheelchair. <laughs> Jay, how is it? Hey, Kenny, how are you, Kenny? <laughs> boom, boom, boom. You know, I couldn't have done it at my 10th reunion. I could have done it at my 40th reunion. At my 50th reunion, I can go back. And Also, I'm a huge believer in low self-esteem. I think that's the key. Oh, I got that covered. <laughs> you know, the only people with high self-esteem are actors and criminals, you know? Every criminal wouldn't have got caught except for that one thing. 
and every yeah. actor would have got the part except for the same reason. I, I think low self-esteem, you immediately realize you're not the smartest person in the room. So maybe you should shut up and listen. I mean, when I took over the Tonight Show, I hired people that are good at their job and let them do their job. And, you know, my credo was sort of anybody could pull the wire and stop the train. So I think uh, low self-esteem, I think, is, is a key. You know. Dr. K, well, how, how would you... Uh... As Jay was talking about low self-esteem, I conceptualize it a completely other way. I call it realistic esteem. Not too low, not too high. Somebody who can learn from others has realistic self-esteem, not really low self-esteem. I think it would be hard for somebody who had low self-esteem to function in the kind of setting that... Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I'm dyslexic. So when I was a kid, and by the way, this is a cure for dyslexia when I was a kid. Smarten up, smarten up, smarten up. I mean, that, that, that's what my parents say. Smarten up, pay attention. Smarten up, ow, ow. You talked a lot about your folks in your act in the early years. I used to love your impressions of your mom and whatnot. And I know they must have instilled in you uh, a great deal of your work ethic. Well, I think anybody that had parents who grew up during the Depression probably has that same feeling. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I always love these ads I hear on the radio. Today, people are concerned about value. Yeah, like my parents do money in the street. You know, they had no idea <laughs> yeah, they had yeah. any intrinsic value. You know, just this idea that one generation is somehow better or smarter than the one that went before. And when it's actually quite the opposite, we're actually dumber. Most people couldn't change a tire if they got a flat. I can change a flat. I call AAA and say, change my flat. Now, there you go. <laughs> but no, a lot of times you'll hear, sorry, we screwed up the world for you young people. Take it over. It's a relay race. It's your turn now. I mean, we tried. Each generation has good intentions going into the next one, I believe. That's a good way to look at it, Andy. Or deluded way. The world's a mess. My mother always would tell me, you're going to have to work twice as hard as the other kids to get the same thing. And that seemed like a fair trade-off. You know, when I would go to the comedy clubs in New York and stuff, I would stand in a line. You know, you used to line up at like 6 o'clock to get an 11 o'clock spot. 8 or 9 o'clock, somebody in front of me would go, this sucks, I'm not with And they'd walk out and i go, good, I'm a fool. <laughs> I mean, I always looked at life that way. And, it, yeah. it, and, and, and that sort of worked out for me, you know. I just never wanted to be one of those comics that, how much does it pay? I'm not going there. Well, what are you doing on a Tuesday that's worth that kind of money? Shut up. You know, I just mm. never wanted to be that guy. So I always did, even when I was doing the Tonight Show, I would do a minimum of 150 days a year. And sometimes it was about 210 days. I just travel a lot because I thought, okay, that's what I do. But now I realize I can't. Okay, so I, I get to spend more time with my wife. You're pretty mellow when it comes to calamity, I'm guessing. Has there been anything crazy about this crazy couple of years that surprised you about yourself in terms of how you've reacted to all of no, this? No, I am not a stressed person. I, I didn't find the Tonight Show to be a high-stress job. Um, I don't find show business to be a high-stress job. I mean, I try to see the bright side of stuff. I'm not someone who dwells on, oh, my God, what are we going to do? This oh, is yeah. Awful. No, I've always been able to tell that about you. Yeah, I mean, I would always meet those people. You can't get a job in show business without being in the union. You can't be in the union without getting a job. Okay, fine. It can't be done. You're right. You're right. It can't be done. Go home. Go back to wherever you're from. Well, that always used to annoy me. I was always able to move on to the next thing fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel terribly sorry for young performers. I'm fortunate this happened towards the twilight in my career rather than the beginning. So, yeah, it's, it's really traumatic for a lot of performers. I mean, for people like me, I was never someone who ever took a vacation. So to me, I figured... The only way I would not be doing stand-up would be a stroke or a motorcycle accident or something of that nature. So mm -hmm. the fact that I'm healthy and walking around is not the end of the world. Jay, I had a question and a thought. The uh, 
attitude you're describing, would you say that's more the exception than the rule in your business? Well, I, I find with comedians, they tend to be either A, teetotalers who live a really straight life or completely opposite, too drunk, too high, gambling. It's, it's either one extreme or the other. Uh, I find comedians seem to have the most stable or the craziest. I've been married 40 years. Billy Crystal is married, I think, 50. Uh, Rickles is married forever and ever. Or it's the other thing we have Larry King kind of watch, you know. Yeah. Divorce court. Hello. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, so I find that they tend to one, one extreme or the other. Most comedians I know either abstain 100% from alcohol and drugs or are just off the charts crazy. I've never even had a beer. You've never had a beer? Are you Amish? I don't drink alcohol <laughs> at all. I don't, I don't smoke dough. I, I have nothing, no moral position again. I just have no interest in it. I was always the car and motorcycle guy in high school, so I was always the designated driver. And I found out that if you totally abstained from something, you didn't get picked on. The big kids, the older kids would pick on you if you were easily persuaded. Come on, have a drink. Come on, uh, come on, have another. But if you just were flat out, no, they would hassle you for a little while, but then never hassle you again. Speaking of youth and vehicles, do you remember the, the first car you got lucky in? I can't even remember the first person I got lucky with. I have no idea. I have no idea who it was. Perhaps Becky Sue on the other line will remind you. Uh-huh. Becky? I have no idea. I, I to me, I would be too concerned. Hey, you're going to ruin the seats. Can we get a room? <laughs> first things first. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I have a favor to ask you, Jay. How much this time? <laughs> Could you say something cool about my 2005 Honda Accord EX sedan with only 50,000 miles on it. Well, a Honda Accord is a great car, actually. It's, it's, Honda Accord has probably replaced the Chevy Impala and the Ford Galaxy as sort of mainstay of American life. No, it's a very good car, and it's actually an American car. It probably has more American-made parts in it than many so-called domestic cars. Is it Leno Garage-worthy? Not quite a classic, I guess. Well, it doesn't need to be a classic. It just means a car that has some sort of... Uh, personal value to you. I mean, I have my garage. Johnny Carson gave me his dad's car. In 1939, Johnny's dad bought I remember a Chrysler that Royal. car. You remember the special Johnny Exactly. That's where that, I remember it from. Well, the, the network thought they'd go out and they'd find one just like Johnny's dad had. Well, they went to Johnny's hometown, and of course, when you grow up in a small town, not much changes. Oh, Johnny's car was still there. A guy had it, and the network bought it for Johnny, who didn't really want it, but he accepted it, you know, and Johnny showed pictures of himself polishing the car when he was like 12 and then going to the prom in the car with those eight millimeter <laughs> kind of movies, you know? Yeah. And when Johnny left the show, he called me and said, what should I do with this car? And I said, well, the Imperial Palace has a museum. They would love to have it, I'm sure. And they'll, you know, they'll get your desk, you know, show pictures from the show. And it turned out to be a huge attraction. And people, for years, people went there. And then when the casino decided to change over to something else, there was a letter in the car from Johnny saying, after he's gone, give it to me. So, uh, so I have it here now. It's been oh, here that's so years. sweet. Yeah, it's kind of nice. By the way, what do you remember most about that first incredible Carson shot in 77? You in the green suit with the vest that's still on YouTube. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. Things stay on YouTube forever there. Uh, yeah. Actually, I had done tons of Merv Griffins and Mike Douglas. Oh, sure. I remember. Uh, I was at the show I, when you were doing that. But the thing is, Johnny is a show that officially got you sort of in show business because Merv would tape months ahead of time. I think you know the story about Seinfeld and I, which is 
very funny. Seinfeld, before he was Seinfeld, before he was really on TV, he got a part on the show Benson, and he played a character named Frankie. He was on for seven episodes. He had taped all of these, and in the middle of, after about episode four or five, he got asked to do Merv Griffin. Okay, but Merv Griffin didn't air until six or eight months later. So Frankie would have been on the air by the time this Merv Griffin show aired. But to the studio audience, they didn't know who Seinfeld was. So Merv Griffin goes, my next guest, a great young comedian. You all know him as Frankie on Benson. You see people going, I watch Benson. Who's Frankie? And then Jerry walks out and people go, I don't know that guy. I watch Benson every week. Well, Joe, his shows hadn't aired yet. And he does his routine. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. So to this day, whenever I would introduce Seinfeld on The Tonight Show, you all know him as Frankie. You know, it's just sort of an inside joke. You know? Yeah, that's great. When things began to take a shift with The Tonight Show after that Hugh Grant moment, uh, the what the hell were you thinking turnaround, that had to be a pleasant rocket ship for you. Well, you know, again, this is one of those things. It's not like things happen overnight. I was doing the show in Johnny's set. And Johnny liked the audience 50 feet away, 80 feet away, and they went straight up. When we went to New York, I said to them, since we don't have a stage in New York, we've got to make one. Can we make it like a nightclub? Can we have the people right next to me, literally so I could shake their hand or touch them or whatever? They said, sure. That was the turnaround. Everybody liked that. I walked out, I shake hands with people. How are you doing? You high five, all that kind of stuff. That started a slow graduate thing. Then we come back to LA. I said, let's make the set like New York. Everybody liked it. The critics liked it. People liked it. It seemed friendlier. Especially Dave was always the aloof one. So I could be the problem. Okay, fine. So that's what we did. Then it started to change. And we were on an upswing. We would sort of match Dave, maybe pull ahead a little bit. And then once the Hugh Grant thing started, People put that down as the turning point, which I guess it was because it really did even better after that. But it really was a gradual thing. That was always my favorite thing about it. I'd read show business biographies. I was a waiter at Sardi's chapter two. After I won my first Emmy, but no, wait, wait, go back. What happened between <laughs> being the waiter? They never tell you what, what happened from the waiter to the winning the Emmy. When, when? That's why I always would get frustrated watching these uh, biographies of these successful people where they would instantly right. shoot to fame. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, the struggling part I'm going through right now. When is that happening? Yeah, to uh, me, that's the interesting part. So, Jay, in my work, my psychology work with clients, coping and dealing with rejection is a common theme. How have you handled that aspect of your business where it's so common? Well, it's interesting. You know, it helps you to understand other people's situations. You know, when I would go for a job, if I didn't get it, I didn't get it because I wasn't good enough. Case closed. I think if you are a minority, female, a Latino, whatever, and you didn't get it. You always have that thing in the back of your mind. They look surprised when I walk in. You think I didn't get it because you just don't know. I always knew why I didn't get it. I wasn't good enough. Case closed. Simple as that. And my theory was always, if you can't get in the front door, go around to the back door. For years, I couldn't get the Carson show. So I went around and I did, I did Merv and Mike Douglas and Waylon Flowers and Madam and every one of these <laughs> little shows. So people kind of said, oh, okay, started to come around a little bit people forget the business. It's show business. It's a business and you have to run it like a business and look at it like a business. The key for me came in the work in the sense that I remember once when I first saw Tonight Show, a guy said to me, hey, I don't really like you, but I like some of your jokes. Okay. Okay. So you don't like the man, you don't like the manufacturer, but you like the product. 
All right. Either way, you're watching the show because of the product. Whether you like me or not is immaterial. It'd be nice if you did, but hey, don't worry about it. But you like what I do. And that's when I realized it has nothing, even to this day, when I go on The Tonight Show with Fallon or one of the other shows, I always go on as a comedian. I'd have material prepared. I never assume that I am interesting or funny on my own or I'll just wing it. I go in with things I know or at least I hope will work. At least I make the effort. You know, I would see them on the Tonight Show, big stars who come and go, uh, Jay, we just, people love me. We'll just talk. And of course, they, they're awful. They have nothing to say. They're very dull. And they don't get asked back again. The real key is to have your product honed to where it's professional. If they like you too, oh, that's a wonderful extra gift. That's really good. If not, you have something to fall back on. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, it, it answers it completely. But I think what you're talking about is this quality of preparation which is so important in so many human endeavors as far as excellence. I always tell people, if you can successfully physically make it to the stage for seven years, you'll make a living in this business. Most people can. After four or five years, again, they're too drunk, they're too high, they're too envious, they're too greedy, they're too selfish, they're too jealous. There's always there's something other than, assuming that they have talent, of course, there's always something that stops them from achieving their goal, and it's rarely their talent. It's always, well, how did that guy get it? new? Or they get consumed with, with, if that guy wasn't here, I would have that part, or whatever it might be. And the idea is to try and put those kind of feelings aside. And so if you can just successfully do it, and it's amazing how many people can. Mm-hmm. A lot of people cannot make that seventh, eighth, ninth year. You know, it's just, it's too much. They've been doing it for so long after seven years. Now they hate their act. What advice would you have for a young Jay Leno today who's put in some years, but still hasn't caught the big break? Well, you can never be too late in being successful. You, only, you can only be too soon in the sense that the longer you take, the more experiences you have. I always tell performers, all the terrible things that happen to you along the way are wonderful fodder for panel and for talk shows and for things of that nature. Every horrible thing that happens to you is really funny to people. I mean, just what you have to endure. And the empathy that that gives you, I mean, my favorite story of this, you know, I, I always empathize with the victims, like with the Bill Cosby thing, when I would see these people go, oh, these women must have known. How stupid were they? You don't know because you're naive. Nobody remembers what it's like to be 19. I mean, when I was 19 years old, I remember I went into a club. What I used to do was I just used to go to clubs in Boston and say I'm a comedian. I went into this guy, the guy said, I'm a comedian. The guy says, so you're a comedian, huh? you in the union? I said, no, I'm, I know there was a union. He goes, oh, you got to be an agri, you got to be acting, you know, the stage performance union. I can't put you on unless you're in the union. I said, well, how do I do it? Go see this guy. And he writes down some agent's name. So I go to see this agent. Are you the guy Marty sent over? Yeah. I said, I'm a comedian. He said, how long have you been a comedian? I'm about a year and a half. He goes, a year and a half? You're supposed to be in the union within 90 days. I could find you right now. You could be in violation. You got to join the union. I said, well, how much is this to join? He goes, $300. I said, well, I don't have $300. And then he said those classic words, how much you got? And I went, I got <laughs> $75. And he, he, took, he took my $75 and he gave me a business card. He wrote Union Man on the back. Wow. He goes, you go back to the club, you show him this card. I said, am I in the union? I goes, yeah. I knew I was being taken. And I remember I went back to the club and I showed the guy the card he wrote Union Man on. And the guy just laughed in my face. Mm. I mean, just that one incident. That was 51 years ago, but I still remember like yesterday. Right. Okay, this is what it's like for these young women. People go, why did you go to Harvey Weinstein's room? 
Well, he's the biggest producer in show business at the time. Why wouldn't, maybe he thinks you have talent. Maybe, maybe he saw me on, you don't know. Cosby. The biggest star on TV invites you up to his room because he thinks you're talented, uh, you know, and it gives you empathy and it makes you understand and it makes you sympathetic to an audience, you know? So the advice would be to take it day by day. Don't judge your success by other people's success. Mm. When I started, I was the only comedian I knew. I didn't know anybody else. I'd never met a professional comedian because I lived in Andover, Massachusetts, you know, 30 miles north of Boston. I remember the neighbor lady, Mrs. Langdell, said, you can't be a comedian unless your father was a comedian. That's the law in California. And I thought, oh, <laughs> what am I going to You know, I, I mean, people who know nothing about show business feel free to give you advice. That's my <laughs> But I had no idea how terrible I was. And then I came here and boom, I'm confronted by an unknown David Letterman, an unknown Robin Williams, an unknown Norm MacDonald, an unknown uh, Jim Carrey. And now, wow, look at all these talented guys. It's unbelievable. Uh, but by that time, I had a little bit of confidence. So I was okay. But all those bad things that happen, they do, they really do build character, you know? Just be glad those bad things happen, I suppose. That's what this show is all about. And my therapy with Dr. K in order to exorcise those demons. And along those lines, Jay, you made a lot of sense and you, there was a lot of wisdom in what you were saying today. And I'm going to incorporate that in my therapy with Andy. And you know, in the future, I'll even consider giving you an update on that if you're in there. <laughs> Yeah, let me know. Let me know how he makes out. I, you can put this down as one of my bad experiences that I've learned from. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us and give us a follow on Twitter at Andy G. Cowan. Well, we want to thank Jay Leno, our supporters at the Benstown McVeigh Media Podcast Network, Mike McVeigh, Chachi, Kevin Horton, Susan Axu, and of course, you, our listeners for the therapy you provide and giving me a reason to get up in the morning. What about my therapy? You're my third reason to get up in the morning. First the audience, then to avoid bed sores, <laughs> then you. Come visit Andy Cowan, that's C-O-W-A-N dot net for a way to reach out and get my big book, Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars, forward by Jay Leno, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Black Rose Writing, and at the National Comedy Center in Lucille Ball's hometown, Jamestown, New York. Hitching on the Highway of Life, opening theme by yours truly, instrumental performance by Marty Rifkin, the full tune also available on Amazon, musical stingers by Steve Crum, Lazy Day closing theme by the Bob Mincer Big Band. For your mental wellness, you can reach me at drscottk at psysolutions.net. Until next session, I'm Andy Cowan. And I'm Dr. Scott Kapoyan. For now, I see our time is up. <laughs>